Good evening and welcome to this Institute for Government event to discuss how the government can provide certainty over its investment plans. I'm Oli Bartram, a senior economist at the Institute for Government and am chairing today's event, which we're delighted to be partnering with Waits Group on. So it is often said that more or better infrastructure spending uh, will help to deliver objectives that are held across the political spectrum, including boosting overall economic growth, uh, reducing uh, regional inequalities in growth, and achieving net zero. Yet the government's plans for capital projects have repeatedly shifted over the last decade. Budgets have been cut, then boosted, and now retrenchment is planned again. And major projects such as HS2 have been sub subject to major revisions in budget and in scope. The five-year National Infrastructure Plan uh, and National Infrastructure and Construction Pipeline only apply to some projects and are still subject to change. So this makes it difficult for the construction sector to plan. That increases costs and means capital budgets don't go so far. So today we're going to explore what the benefits of and barriers to a longer term and more stable project pipeline are. And uh, to discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined by an excellent panel. Uh, on my right, we have Avashi Parasha, uh, Chief Impact Officer and Chief Economist at the UK Infrastructure Bank. Uh, she also previously led analysis for the Leveling Up White Paper. Uh, on the screen, joining us from Parliament in between votes on the Migration Bill, we have uh, Bill Esterson, um, who is Shadow, Business, uh, Shadow Minister for Business and Industry. We have Steve Beachy, uh, Group Public Sector Director at Waits Group, um, and Sir John Armit, Chair of the National Infrastructure Commission. Um, <clears throat> So we will be live tweeting uh, this event from the account IFG Events using the hashtag uh, IFG Infrastructure. Um, so please follow along and uh, tweet your own thoughts if you have any or um, whatever the Twitter alternatives are now, threads. Um, and for those who are watching online, you can submit your questions via Slido. Um, we'll come to audience questions uh, from about 40 minutes in. Those in the room, start thinking now about what you want to ask. Uh, so, I think that's more than enough from me. Um, so, John, I'd like to come to you first to help us set the scene a bit. Uh, the NIC put out a fantastic report earlier this year, setting out the UK's progress or perhaps lack of progress on infrastructure. I mean, the main message that I got from it was that government has set out ambitious goals for infrastructure, but is off track uh, to deliver them. Um, so what factors are driving that and how in particular does certainty and stability fit into it? Well, I suppose it's probably we shouldn't be surprised that um Governments, ministers like to make ambitious statements. Um, you know, that's uh, what people want to hear, that things are going to get a lot better, that we're, for example, going to have 40 new hospitals in the next 10 years, um, um, etc. cetera. Um, but the difficulty, I think, is that ambition is difficult to match with delivery. Um, who is responsible for delivery? And I think one of the difficulties we have is that government departments support the minister in creating the ambitious policy, um, but there's not a great deal then behind that when it comes to ownership of that policy and the ability to drive that, that policy. There's a great difference between making policy and actually doing the sort of rather, <clears throat> the rather more difficult day job of driving um, relentlessly delivery. Uh, the two things are entirely different and I would argue that to be fair that's not what most people join the civil service to do. Uh, and of course it's not what ministers actually want to be a minister for or what they're expected to be a minister for when they're appointed. 
you know, how many column inches are you going to get, chum, in the next six months to sort of support the party and, uh, and, uh, and the Prime Minister? How are you going to demonstrate you're making a difference? Well, you make a difference by going off and making a new policy about something that the previous guy who was there for 18 months made a policy about 18 months ago. Um, I mean, I'm being a slight cynical, but I think it is a difficulty of the process. And I'm not saying, you know, there is, a, you know, that's democracy in a sense. I'm not saying there is some very easy alternative. Um, but it, is, it does put you then in that difficult position. I mean, if I go back to 2018, and we made a recommendation then that in order to make our homes across the country energy efficient, we needed 20,000 installations a week um, over the next sort of 10, 10 years. And we've not seen anything like that. In fact, we've seen a decline in the number of installations. Why? Well, because the detailed sort of um, incentives um, and arrangements to, to deliver that uh, have just not been put in place. Um, we've seen a slower rollout of EV charging points than is necessary to sustain the shift to EVs so that by 2030 it's realistic to say, well, there aren't going to be any petrol or diesel cars for, for, for sale. Um, we've seen certainly a very slow take-up for example, on heat pumps. France getting 40,000 a year. France installs 300,000 a year. So what is France getting right that we're not getting right in being able to incentivize people to make these sort of changes? The government has a target of, what, 600,000 a year by 2028. I mean, we're at 40,000, yet the target is 600,000. And there's, and it's very evident that the current approach doesn't work but then it comes back to, well, how is government and what are the restraints on government finance? Because this is largely about subsidy. Or you make dramatic differences in the price of gas or electricity. These are really tricky questions and challenging ones. But it's, you know, even unless you're prepared to address them, then you're not going to meet that sort of ambitious objective that you, you set out. Um, on the other hand, the rollout of fibre has gone very well. And I would, I would argue that some of the meetings I've been at where you've had industry, department, regulator, um, all sitting around the table saying, well, what are our blockers? What have we got to do to overcome the blockers here? It's been very, very strong. Uh, and an example of what can happen when you get everybody pulling, pulling together. Um, I think we also have to remember that, you know, most of the majority of our economic infrastructure is actually provided by the private sector. It's government does road, rail, and flood defences. Yeah, the rest comes from the private sector. So how are you going to get the private sector to invest? Well, you're not going to get them to invest. There's uncertainty around policy, or if it changes every, every so often, or if we can't make a decision for in the next five years. I mean, in 18, we said you need to be in a position to make a decision on hydrogen by 23 at the latest. Um, now it's 2026. Will a decision be made by 2026? Well, your guess is as good as mine. Um, but um, it, ideally, it needs to be made sooner if we're to actually see confidence in either hydrogen or the rollout of heat pumps. But until you've got, as long as you've got that indecision, um, and one appearing easier than the other, and possibly believing that it might be less disruptive, I'm not sure it will be, um, but hydrogen tends to be seen as, oh, well, that must be easy. Um, and so why would I make a decision to do anything else um, beforehand? So um, I think these, having the delivery mechanisms following on from the ambition is essential and having the policies which give the private sector the confidence that they can go and invest, whereas if you're chopping and changing your mind all the time, then uh, private sector is going to find it very difficult to follow on. So I think my, uh, my summary at the moment <coughs> would be, yes, you know, Great to have a lot of policies around and a lot of ambitious targets, but they're, you know, they're not worth the paper they're written on if you haven't actually got the right mechanisms which are going to ensure delivery to follow up. Excellent. Thanks very much, John. And I think that leads us very nicely to uh, Steve. So uh, Waits uh, does a lot of work across the public sector, delivering a wide range of projects at scale. I believe you did the UK's first net zero schools, prisons, social housing, lots of other stuff. So, so John just mentioned the importance of giving the private sector the confidence that it needs to help us 
meet our infrastructure ambitions. What would you like to see change uh, in the way that the government plans and delivers its infrastructure projects? Okay, thanks, Ollie. Uh, and thank you to the IFG for hosting this event. I think um, this is a really, really important discussion that we're uh, really, really, uh, really delighted to be part of. Um, <clears throat> the, just in terms of the weights group, um, thank you for that introduction. Just a couple of other things I'd, I'd like to highlight. We are a, um, one of the UK's largest family-owned construction businesses working across residential um, and property services and also construction. And we began 126 years ago as a house builder in Croydon. Uh, so we've grown a lot since then uh, across, the, uh, cr 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 across the UK. Um, and we've got a great deal of experience working uh, on large-scale pro large projects and also smaller-scale projects with central and local government. Um, and we've worked with all sorts of clients, including the DFE, the MOJ, the MOD, and 154 local authorities. I was quite surprised. That's, a, that's a, you know, over, over half of the local authorities in the UK. Um, and we're, we're also, uh, as, as, as Ollie mentioned, working on net zero schools, net zero um, housing, um, net zero prisons, a whole host of different types of infrastructure around net zero. Um, the, uh, the, the, the sort of the, the other thing I wanted to mention as well is actually we, we're involved in the, the first giga, the giga factory up in uh, Washington for Envision, which is a billion pound partnership between Nissan UK and Sunderland City Council. Um, and it's the next generation of, of electric vehicle batteries that will be 30% more effective and efficient and, um, and, and will provide 10,000 um, batteries to cars every year. So it's a huge investment, really, really important about the future direction of, of our country. And it will provide 4,500 jobs permanently for the area, high quality jobs. So really, really important um, in the sort of infrastructure that we need. Um, in terms of, um, you know, we, we, we're committed to really investing in the UK construction industry around the skills and modern methods of construction. For example, we've built a factory in Coventry, um, um, a 68,000 square foot factory, to produce mechanical and electrical um, components. These are sort of prefabricated modular kits to put into um, all sorts of um, uh, buildings. And we find that's really efficient um, and is sort of the direction of travel we, we need to go in, 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 in terms of making our industry more, more, more effective and efficient. Um, at the moment, the industry, um, I don't think there's an, enough su sufficient certainty from the government in terms of future pipeline. That's one of the issues that we need to make those sorts of investments. There's some investment we've made in Coventry, really, really important, but we need long-term commitments to enable us to take that risk and, 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 and create those sorts of facilities. In real terms, this means that we are not able to, you know, to make the, next, the training decisions as well for the next generation of workers that's going to meet our country's ambitions. Um, it prevents us making major investment decisions to build the sorts of factories, as I mentioned, um, and, and, and really driving things on. One simple way the government could drive growth would be to provide constructions with that longer-term pipeline, um, and obviously when we discuss that here today. Um, Interestingly, we haven't actually had a, um, a, a, a pipeline from the IPA since 2021. There are a number of reasons for that, um, change of government and all sorts of other issues, changes within the government and all sorts of other things, but it's, it's not helpful and it's something we really need to address. But we also need it to be a five to ten year look, not just a short term look at the, what, what's coming in the next year or two. That's not really going to help help us really make a difference. Um, and we'd also like to see a more strategic approach to planning. That is another huge issue that is holding us back in terms of being able to take investment decisions and drive things on. And there are, most of the projects that, that we're involved in are held up in planning in one form or another, which is really, really uh, making it difficult for us to, to drive things on. Um, and then the, the final point I would make really is about this, this issue around really getting the, getting, generating this, this workforce for the future. 
In the construction industry, 40% of the construction population retires in the next 10 years. We desperately, desperately need to get those, to get new people, young people engaged in the industry to, 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 to make it fit for tomorrow. And that is a huge, hugely important challenge for us. Excellent. Thanks very much, Steve. Lots there to uh, unpack in further discussion. Um, Bill, if I could come to you next. Uh, I guess we've heard a lot about uh, the problems that we have so far. Um, if I could focus on one of them in particular, we know from the uh, work of uh, John and colleagues at the NIC and also the Climate Change Committee that current government is off track to deliver its um, net zero targets. Labour's are even more ambitious, so you want to decarbonise uh, the energy system by 2030. I mean, what would a Labour government do, potentially with five years or less to go to reach that target, to help really get things going and get things built, both in the energy sector, but also to address some of the other wider problems that we've uh, heard about in delivering infrastructure? Uh, well, thank you uh, very much, Ollie. And uh, sorry, I'm not able to be there uh, this evening. The, uh, the the bell may go at any time, which uh, um, I'll have to rush off again. But hopefully not. Hopefully not for a few minutes. Um, and look, it's it's uh, it's it's great to join the the, the panel. I was uh, reflecting on a couple of things that, uh, that John Stevens said already. Actually, uh, one of the forty supposed new hospitals, um, supposedly, was built in my constituency. Um, it looks suspiciously like a new department in an existing hospital, <laughs> and. Uh, in fact, that's exactly what it is, if not a not new hospital at all, which you know, is, is yeah, the, the, the overreaching claims of government. I think John was uh, John, John, John was setting those out and, uh, and I aspire to do rather better uh, if I become a minister sometime next year. Um, it's great to see Steve. So Steve showed me around the site where the new Merseyside Fire and Rescue Service uh, headquarters and National Resilience Centre is being built just just down the road from my constituency um, a couple of months ago, and uh, very very impressive the approach that that, that weights are, are, are taking, and a really good example of how the private sector has so much to offer uh, and why it is so important the government partners with uh, with the private sector, and I, you know, just as something that John said that really did struck a chord with me the the i the example with fiber industry department and regulators sitting down and working out the answers together is exactly what labor proposes to do through an industrial strategy i was really heartened to hear, to read in the ft a few months ago now i think it was that uh, a joint article between greg clark vince cable and peter mandelson said making exactly this point that you have to have that partnership. It is what successful modern economies do. And in ultimately, I think the success for Labour, as much as anything, will come if at the end of our first term in office, we have demonstrated the value of that partnership to such a degree that it is unremarkable, it, is, it has consensus support, and that it survives not just across different parliaments, but regardless of who is in office. Uh, and that is one of our objectives, um, I, I think, if we are to, to succeed, to end that uncertainty, to end the market um, difficulties that, that, that have been exacerbated um, by the mini budget in, in September, but actually were really the culmination of a long period of uncertainty and constant changes of, of, of direction and decision and, 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 and actually more than that, a lack of decision making. It's, there's a 15-year pipeline for new wind farm uh, projects to uh, be connected to the, the, the grid. I mean, we're clearly going to have to do rather better than that to answer your question and hit a 2030 target. Um, but ultimately, speeding up decision making in the public sector is critical for the private sector to play its part. And one of the ways that we will deliver to this agenda is that we 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 have we've outlined what we've described as missions, five missions. And it is that you know, to your point about 
clean energy. We have a clean energy superpower mission to hit that 2030 target. It will involve the whole of government. It will, rather in the way that the vaccine task force was able to cut across different departments, rather in the way that John outlined the, the way that Fiverr is implemented, it will, regard, it will require a very large degree of cooperation and joint working, whether that's across government, between government and the private sector and the investment community, um, um, and actually a combination of, of those factors. So, so that is the key uh, uh, approach. But fundamentally, we have to deliver confidence in the markets. We have to turn around the record low level of business investment in this country, um, massively so, to, to crowd in the private investment on the scale that is needed to deliver the capacity that is implied um, or is explicit, in fact, in our, in, in, in our, in our targets. So that is, that is the plan. It is, it is challenging. You're absolutely right about that, Ollie. Uh, but actually, if we are going to hit one of our other missions of sustaining the highest growth in the G7, this is how we do it. We create the jobs, we create the prosperity, we create the growth, and it, it, it will happen by being ambitious, by, by, by removing the barriers um, and by working closely with the, the private sector. And one of the, the things that I spend my time doing is talking to people like Steve around the country, learning what works, what is effective in delivery, what, the, what are the changes that are needed so that an incoming Labour government is ready on day one to implement the changes with the support, with the relationships of people in the business community so that we can succeed together. Excellent. Thanks very much, Bill. And thanks again for joining us uh, uh, during the votes. Um, hopefully, you'll be able to stay with us for a bit, but uh, obviously, no worries if, if, if the bell goes. So, um, Bill mentioned crowding in private investment there, Avashi, and we've heard a lot about private investment so far from, sorry, private sector investment so far from all of the panelists. <coughs> I mean, part of it, is about is sort of in the context of giving the private sector confidence. But another thing the government often worries about is whether it's simply displacing private investment. And that's you know often a reason for not making significant investments uh, with public money. Um, now, I know it's something that you've done a lot of thinking about working on UKIB's a sort of strategy for additionality and where, you know, you can really make change. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, I'll give a quick uh, bit of context about uh, the UK Infrastructure Bank. So we are a government-owned policy bank, and we were set up uh, two years ago. Um, uh, exactly. We, we celebrated our two-year anniversary last month. Um, and we were set up with a very clear mandate that we must deploy £22 billion of capital in partnership with the private sector and the public sector in service of two strategic objectives, to support the net zero transition and on regional and local economic growth. Both clearly very urgent, important, and defining missions in the forthcoming decades. And as many of the analysis from, from uh, Desnes and CCC has shown, you know, the public sector can't do it alone because the size of the investments required, um, you know, the additional capital on net zero, for example, uh, is 50 to, 50 to 70 billion a year. So I wanted to make a couple of points on your additionality and displacement argument, which is the first one is that additionality is hardwired into how we select our projects mm -hmm. and how we deploy capital and how we solve problems as an institution. It's within our operating principle and you know, we have to not just make a positive financial return, but we have to demonstrate additionality and crowd in and mobilize private capital. But we look at additionality you know, from very first principles, and that is what our additionality approach that was published last year showed, that we look at the barriers and the market failures that we are here to solve. Uh, we look at what would happen if we didn't support a particular sector or a project. 
would, would, would we go in to scale up uh, new technologies? Would we go in to commercialize new business models? Or are we going in to facilitate new investors where the investor market is not as matured? You know, which, which of these are we doing? And we have five priority sectors as well. So we operate within these very clear parameters. And I think that sort of gives us the independence to lay out our stall and to test where we would invest, how we would invest, and where we would add value. Um, and I would say, you know, I mean, much of what we do and what we are going to be doing is in the transformational infrastructure space. And in that space, displacement could be a red herring because we are looking at displacing lower value added with higher value added. We are, just, we are, we are, we are trying to create green infrastructure from low you know, uh, high carbon intensive infrastructure. Uh, and we are quite aware that we have to capture the added value there and not simply get bogged down by you know, the crowding out uh, argument. Although, as I said, because it's built within our operating principles, we are every investment we make, and we are being very transparent about it. If you go to our website, you will see that all of our investments so far, we are publishing fact sheets, which clearly say why we have, why we've gone in and invested, um, and how much capital have we mobilized. Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, so going to get into a couple of issues with the panel, but just another reminder for those in the room to start thinking about questions now and those uh, online to continue sending them in. Uh, thanks to those who have already, including the one that arrived at 9 a.m. Some people are very keen. Um, <coughs> so uh, I wondered if we could actually it's come up quite a few times, so I wonder if we could turn to planning. Um, Steve, you mentioned that it's one of the big barriers that sort of weights faces. Yeah. And Sir John, I know it's something that featured heavily in your, in your, in your progress report. So maybe you could um, kick us off with, you know, what, what the issues are, um, but also if anyone has any ideas on what the solutions should be. <laughs> Um, because obviously this is, a, I think for technocrats, it's a very simple, easy thing to solve. Um, but for people like Bill, who have to deal with the political consequences of it, it's extremely tricky. Yeah. Um, so. Well, we were, we were actually asked by Treasury, oh, it must be nine months ago now, I think, to do a study on planning when it sort of started to bubble up as being a, an issue. And one of the first things was to sort of look at it historically. And what you get from that is that in 2010, 2012, sort of it first came in in 2008, got modified in 2010, the, the whole NSIPS regime. Um, it was taking about two and a half years to get through to um, conclusions by the, by the inspector and passing it on to the minister for a decision. And um, now it's over four years. So in 10 years, we've got seen a 60% increase in the time it takes. Even more scary, I think, is the fact that we've gone from 10% of projects being judicially reviewed to 58% of projects being judicially reviewed. Now, judicial review is a disaster uh, at the end of the day because it, it inevitably is going to add at least 18 months, if not more, onto the, onto the time frame. Um, of uh, what was meant to be a decision, and then that decision gets judicially reviewed. So the background is, is, is poor. Um, we made a number of recommendations, first of which was that the government needed to update uh, the national policy statements, because without a clear national policy statement, the inspector is left almost making up policy by himself, because he hasn't got clear direction from government as to what is of national interest, what therefore you know, a project automatically, in a sense, is necessary. Now let's see what are the things which are causing concern about this project and how are those going to be mitigated? What is the promoter proposing to do so that that makes this project more acceptable? But the fundamentals, that this is a project which fulfills national policy, has to be the starting point. And if you haven't got a national policy statement and the energy one hasn't been updated since 2010, 
then who's left to sort of discern that? And of course, the poor old inspector finishes up trying to discern what, what is policy. We then said those should be updated every five years and kept, kept fresh, if you like, to reflect anything else which government decided in the, in the interim. The other thing you discover is that um, environmental assessments are made on projects which can be relatively adjacent, but you start from square one on an environmental assessment and mitigation. So we're not carrying forward and we're not learning from what has already been done. Um, great work for consultants, but not very good for getting projects moved along quickly. Um, we've also, well, it's, there needs to be more pressure from the centre. So actually, at the end of the day, what drives things? Well, it's attention from either Treasury or Number 10. So let's have a unit at the centre which is monitoring progress on these applications and, and geeing people up if they're not moving um, quickly enough. And then finally, let's be willing to use a bit more uh, incentive uh, to help people come to terms with these schemes. They may not be the direct beneficiary. And classic at the moment is the, uh, the power lines, which are necessary to reinforce the grid across the country, which is getting a lot of attention in the last few days. Um, well, therefore, think about should those people who are living under these power lines and putting up with the, uh, with the impact of them, getting their electricity for 10% less or whatever figure you might discern but let's look at how we can make it easier for people who are on the receiving end of uh, these infrastructure impacts to actually come to, to terms with them. So those are some of the ideas which we, we came forward with. But I mean, to the point that was made earlier on, I mean, it is everywhere you go. It's not just in economic infrastructure, it's in social infrastructure, it's in housing. Everywhere you go at the moment, planning is one of the biggest um, difficulties. Apparently people don't want to go into the planning profession. Um, I mean, a developer will pay the local authority to go and hire some consultants to actually look at his planning application. Now, that might sound to be a bit of a vested interest in that, but I mean, the fact that developers are having to pay local authorities to go and recruit some people to actually look at their planning application says it all. Thanks very much. Steve, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, no, I mean, everything, I agree with everything John said, and it, 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 everything, I'm experiencing exactly the same issues that you've talked about, and that 58% that figure on judicial review absolutely supports <laughs> our own experience. Um, it, it is, it's wrong, quite frankly, the situation we have, um, because it's just holding up economic growth. For every pound that's spent in the construction industry, it has an impact, a multiplier effect of £2.92. So it's, it's a hugely important engine for growing our economy. And yet, we, it's just at the moment spinning its wheels. We, can't get, we cannot get the projects through. Now, that's also costing us as taxpayers lots of money because it increases the overhead for the contractors and the supply chain because of all these delays and all these people who are working hard and trying to get these projects through. It's not, a, it's not an efficient way to do business. On, on, a, you know, on a world platform where we're competing with all these countries around the world, you know, they haven't got these sort of problems. Do you think China's sat there waiting for planning approval you know, over three years to get a scheme ahead? Of course they're not. They're just moving on with it. Now, I'm not saying that's the right thing for us. Of course not. But we, we, need, we need to get the balance right. And I think that the government did have a, a, the, the planning bill and that got a, abandoned uh, due to political pressure um, following the by-election result. So that, that was obviously something that was on the agenda. And it's really, really important that that is back on the agenda again. Um, you know, we really do need these assets. You know, we've got a housing crisis that is being made hugely worse by planning problems. We've got assets like prisons that we desperately need. Prison places, we're nearly at 100% capacity with the prisons, and yet they're all delayed in huge, hugely expensive and problematic planning delays. Um, and it's just, it doesn't seem right, and it's something we really, really need to address. Excellent. Thanks very much. Uh, Bill, I don't know if you want to come in on, come in on the issue of, of planning and, and whether Labour would... Uh, change anything about how the system works uh, if, if they were to come in? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I, I think we have to speed 
things up dramatically uh, if we're going to make the kind of progress that we were talking about earlier. And I mean, one area is ending the moratorium on onshore wind um, mm. so that it can get consent, which is the cheapest form of, of uh, renewable electricity generation. But more widely, I think John's points are, are very well made as as, as ever. Uh, there, yes, there is, but there, yes, there is a skill shortage, and we have to address it. We have to be prepared to recruit potentially from overseas in the short term, but certainly invest in in skills development in planning. But we've got to we've got to do that across the piece. We've got a million vacancies in this country. There's a much wider point here around around construction um, and, and infrastructure, but. Um, We've got to end. We've got to reverse the hollowing out of planning departments that's been a consequence of local government cuts. And planning departments have, have suffered some of the biggest cuts around the country, and that is a very significant contributor to planning delays. There just isn't hasn't been the capacity there to um, deal with planning applications. Um, but absolutely, we have we have to do this. And, and just to, I, I, I like John's point about uh, there being benefits for communities affected by large infrastructure projects. I think, in general terms, there need to be benefits for people who are affected by planning decisions. But there's a wider point around transition to low carbon. We've got to take people with us. Uh, so far, there isn't a sense of immediacy about the impact of the climate emergency, even though we, you know, so three, the three hottest days ever were last week in, 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 in the world. There's no sense of immediacy because it hasn't affected people in this country, for example, because we, we happen to have um, the, the Gulf Stream was in a different, was in a place that meant we didn't experience those, those ultra high temperatures. Um, We've got to make for people incentives to benefit from from the transition. Um, and this is true of planning. It's true. Of, uh, it's true of jobs transitions. It's true of lower bills uh, for, for energy. Uh, it's true of benefiting in transport terms when we move away from uh, petrol and diesel in in, in in our private cars. Some of which, by the way, is about public transport and uh, really good quality public transport, more universally available. London style system as widely as possible, uh, as much as it is about making electric cars available. But uh, I know I've moved away from planning, but uh, I, think, I think a lot of these things are linked. Excellent. Thanks very much. Uh, so I'm going to start sort of uh, drifting into uh, audience questions now, um, largely because someone online has posed the question I was going to ask uh, better than I did. So thanks to uh, Jeff White. Um, and his question is on essentially the links between central government's infrastructure strategies and local governments. <coughs> There's lots and lots of issues here um, and panellists can choose which angle they want to take on it. Um, but obviously <coughs> levelling up is one of the objectives that politicians often want to achieve with infrastructure investment. At the same time, we have a huge debate about de devolution and how much to devolve. There's an interesting question there about whether you can improve the certainty and stability of the project pipeline by devolving down to local governments, who tend to have a bit of a longer term view. There are also a number of other questions just about how you get that local voice into central planning more effectively. Now, Avashi, maybe I can start with you because you've got a great history with levelling up, having led the analysis for the white paper. Now at UKIB, one of your strategic focuses is levelling up. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you make sure that that local voice is reflected in the decisions that you make? So I think just putting my uh, old levelling up hat on, mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I'd just like to remind people that one of the significant features of the white paper was how we thought about leveling up or how we thought about you know, spatial disparities and how to solve, solve the problems. And that is to look at it in a holistic systems way. And we said that there is not one single capital you should be thinking of. Um, and you should be thinking about the place from bottom up and think about what makes what the place needs rather than a one size fits all it's a very different way of solving problems 
of a place rather than saying, I'm going to try helicopter view and look at all the places and every place needs X, Y, and Z. Um, and it's basically what, what the white paper was saying was rewiring of a mindset of how we resolve uh, spatial disparities. And uh, when I started my current role, uh, it became even more apparent because you know I'm in the coal face. Uh, you know, part of making decisions about where and how the capital will be deployed, and it's very clear that infrastructure is has a you know is a huge multiplier in 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 the leveling up context. But it's part of a bigger ecosystem, and we've got to look at that ecosystem. Um, and if if you saw the green finance strategy, there were some very neat pictures of where the different institutions fitted in. We had uh, you know government, UKRI, British Business Bank, us, and the private sector. And I think uh, you know. Having that rewiring, a rewired mindset, and looking at what a place needs, infrastructure being a key part of that, but taking a more systems approach to how infrastructure investment fits in with what uh, you were saying earlier about skills, workforce planning. You just we just revealed how all these issues are interconnected, uh, and you know these are hard, wicked problems, but you know. We have to start solving them. So what the way the way we are doing it in the bank is exactly that. So our impact framework that we published clearly, and 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 we are operationalizing it in in our decision making. That when we shape and deliver our deals, we are very much looking at all these wider you know aspects, and we are also looking at the intersectionality between net zero and regional and local economic growth, because. You know, you can't look at them separately. You simply cannot. And you would be doing disservice to either of those benefits if you did look at them separately. Um, and that's what we are trying to do. Excellent. Thanks very much, Vashi. Uh, I don't know if anyone else wanted to come in on this topic. Steve, potentially, I know you've written yes. about it. Yes, thank you. <clears throat> um, I had the privilege to be involved in the LGA's inquiry into um, levelling up. Uh, locally, and um, it's really interesting actually because there's some really important key findings. One was that the UK's fiscal system um, is a real hindrance to growth locally, and um, fiscal devolution is something that should be you know, seriously considered. Um, funding streams and grant streams. Um, need a little more long-term focus to them. There's another key finding, you know, they're too short-term, that actually, that actually uh, makes, it, makes it more difficult for communities to use them and, 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 and become effective. Um, and then the political cycles and short-term budgets um, make it quite difficult to build trust with communities and, and, and allow projects to flow through. So there was, there was a number of different findings that um, and we were, that we sort of um, uh, resulted in. And I think the, the other thing we were looking at was how different countries are doing it. And one of the things is that Germany, um, they have um, a, 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 a philosophy of economic development. So they invest five times more than the UK every year in economic development, which they then distribute sort of regionally. And, um, and that has resulted in a much better um, uh, situation they've got in terms of their, their, their regional um, growth and, 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 and there's less, less of an issue in terms of that, that disparity. So you know, there are some key things really that we, that we, need, to, we need to look at and it's really important uh, that, we, that we do that. Excellent. Um, so John, Bill, I'm aware that you will probably have some uh, points to land on levelling up, but I'm going to take a couple more questions from the audience and then you can then you can choose what you want to address so if anyone in in the room has anything they want to ask please raise your hand we have some roving mics coming around the room um gentleman over there in the blue jacket um barney white spanner i mean one of the issues on planning um which strikes me not something i've been involved in is I'm not certain that councils rarely know what they can do and what they can't do. And I think quite often you find there's tension 
between planning committees and officials. Uh, and there isn't actually a sort of clear set of guidelines. I really like the idea, I think, Sir John, you mentioned having a sort of a central policing, if you like, um, of that. But I, I, it, I think it really needs maybe a new government could have a forensic look at actually what the powers of planning committees are and where a planning committee can overturn um, or short-circuit some of the issues that officials raise and some of the issues that are raised by peripheral bodies. Um, and now I say it, I'll probably be attacked by every bat lover in the country, but I mean an awful lot of the world developments in this country which are being held up by bat surveys at enormous cost are completely ludicrous. Um, so I, I think there's a, a real case for having a detailed look at what council planning committee's powers are. Excellent, thanks very much. I'm gonna take one from online as well. Um, which links to something that we were all discussing before we got on stage, actually, um, which is about, I guess, the government's risk appetite. Um, so the type of cost-benefit analysis we usually do m might not... Um, well, I guess there are two related issues. One, economic cost-benefit analysis might not reveal the true benefits of transformational projects. And the other one that's probably linked to that is the government is quite averse to taking risks and to investing a lot of money in a project that goes wrong. Um, and uh, Colin Megson, I think, has asked uh, a, a, a question about a specific example of this, uh, which is using hydrogen to uh, deliver carbon-free grid electricity, which is an example that we touched on before. So. Three topics. We've got the levelling up topic from earlier in devolution. Uh, we have the question from the audience on uh, what powers uh, committees actually have in the context of, of planning, uh, particularly whether they can resolve the BAT survey issue, um, and the question on government's risk appetite, particularly in the context of net zero. Uh, if you want to come to any or all of those, Sir John, uh, for yours. Well, taking the, <clears throat> I mean, taking the devolution issue first, we've, for now, several years now, basically argued for greater devolution uh, and particularly financial devolution. Um, and then you can get on to local tax raising or money raising fiscal devolution and enabling local authorities to raise their own money, which is another issue. But in the first place, I think government has to stop having these competitions for money all the time and to be far more prepared to actually, almost on a spatial basis, say, look, these are areas where we are going. And they've started to do it, to be fair, with um, West Midlands and Greater Manchester recently, who've got five yearly settlements and the promise of further five yearly settlements. That needs to be rolled out across a much greater number of um, local authorities. Um, their best coming to the point of bottom-up. You know, they're the best people to actually understand the local community, what is needed, what they're going to be responsible for and accountable for to their electorate for what happens in their town or city. People down here shouldn't be responsible for what happens in, uh, in uh, regional cities and, and towns. They don't have that sense of ownership for a start. It's all done in a theoretical basis rather than a real sense of ownership about what to, somebody feeling accountable to their citizens and their voters. Um, and I would like to see them in the same situation as the, um, uh, the, regulated, um, the regulated utilities, where every five years they get a settlement and they know, they know they're going to get another one in five years' time. And so they have that ability to look forward and plan <coughs> on, on that basis. They need to be, also of course, they can't do that without the skills. And it's a vicious circle. If you're not being given the responsibility to do things, then nobody's going to work, want to work for you. If, in fact, people can see that things are really happening at a local level and there's an opportunity to be involved in something and probably seeing it being delivered a lot quicker than if you're involved in something at a national level, then working uh, good people, working in local authorities, being part of that will become a lot more attractive because without those people, they're going to really struggle to plan and understand what their, what their opportunities um, are. So I think devolution is absolutely critical, but it's got to be with money attached and the opportunity ultimately to be able to raise money because at the moment um, it's 90% comes from the centre and 10% is local, which is, uh, which is just ridiculous. Um, and of course the strength of Germany is the lander 
um, the lander approach and the fact that it is much more regionalized and therefore people have that local identity, they invest in local banks, uh, you know, the local banks and the colleges might decide what the education needs are going to be. It's much more um, locally approached in, 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 in Germany. Um, I could go on a lot longer, but I'll let other people <laughs> some of the... Uh... Thanks. Thanks very much. Mm. Uh, Bill, I wondered if I could come to you next. Uh, just a reminder, we're talking about uh, lots of things. Uh, <laughs> Levelling up risk appetite and uh, clarity over when planning decisions can be overruled. Yeah. Uh... Our industrial strategy specifies the importance of investment in the regions and of devolving decision-making and resources to do so. Uh, it's an inherent part of, of how, do we, in, how we grow the economy effectively uh, across, across the country. So this is, this is very much the agenda that we want to um, adopt. And we've got to, you know, there's so much, I mean, my 13 plus years in Parliament, and it was going on long before I got here, uh, decision-making is made far too often on the basis of what works in London and the immediate southeast, and the needs of the rest of the country are not are not considered. So this point about decentralisation and devolution is, is, is very, very well made and will be fundamental to how we operate as a, as a, as a government if we are indeed to get there. And... Uh, I'll I'll just talk a bit about uh, I think the, the point about risk appetite and uh, we 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 saw the frustration right for, for, for many people when Labour left office in 2010 the offshore wind industry in this country was was leading the world um, we've expanded it significantly um, but we're now third or fourth Denmark Japan um, I think elsewhere I think it might be um, I can't remember if there's a, another country there or not, but we've slipped down the ranking. In um, The only reason we've done as well as we have is because we're a windy island in the North Sea where it, where we are ideally placed to benefit from, from wind, not for any big strategic reason. We cut the solar feed-in tariffs um, as, as well. David Cameron famously said, cut the green crap in 2013, and we went from 2 million homes a year being insulated to uh, tens of thousands most recently. And this just is not the way to, to, to plan. And um, I don't know whether that's risk, risk appetite or something something else, but it's a it's a withdrawal of, of government and the public sector from crucial areas of opportunity and, 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 and investment in the infrastructure in the, of, of, the, of the country as a whole. And I think that government has a fundamental role um, alongside uh, businesses, as, as, as I've been saying. And I think we have to, you know, we, I, I think government's role, actually, as much as anything, is to, in, in crowding in private money, it is to act as the guarantor to give the certainty, the long-term confidence. So our plan for installation of homes, for example, is a 10-year plan. That gives the industry the ability to say, we can gear up, we can recruit, we can train, we can invest in our businesses to deliver the 2 million homes a year that we envisage as part of that plan. And that's the kind of role, I think, for, for, for government where um, it's, it's a balanced risk, actually, because you can make a business case I and mean, this is really what what business does isn't it you you make the case you put together your business plan and you say that's got a good chance of, of, of succeeding and there's for me there's a there's a role to play in in in, uh, in 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 the public sector in a similar way as investors do in the private sector of saying look for an effective industrial strategy we've got to look at a range of technologies because right now to your point about hydrogen, Ollie, we don't know which technologies are going to come to the fore. We don't know what the balance of different technologies are going to is going to be in the transition to low carbon. So, government's role has got to be encourage uh, to, to encourage and attract the private investment across a range of these technologies. Um, that applies for infrastructure. It applies to the technologies directly and 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 the companies. I think that's where we will get the success. 
Excellent. Thank you very much, Bill. Uh, Steve Avashi, if you want to make uh, any small additions to your uh, uh, other remarks. You're, I, I shall have to say goodbye to you now because that's the bell, bell to vote going on in the background. Bill. <laughs> okay. On risk appetite. <laughs> It's really, really important to address that because it's, it's not efficient the way that um, often government procurement works. Um, and I would, I would mention an example of alliancing. Um, alliancing, we're doing it in prisons, um, sort of doing it in potentially healthcare and uh, education. And that is bringing, bringing contractors together to work um, uh, at the most efficient solution, sharing knowledge, looking at sort of efficiencies around a common platform and, 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 and sort of looking, looking in a different way about risk appetite and risk allocation and perhaps in a more strategic way. It's what the construction playbook was looking for. It's what that is driving at, is that early engagement, that efficiency around how we, how we bring you know, private sector and, 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 and public sector in this case together to, to, to make the most efficient and, uh, and, 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 and responsible decisions. I think that's really, really important. Um, and then obviously that links in with planning as well, because if we can get the planning system working more efficiently, clearer allocation around that and, 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 and more, system, more systems-based approach to planning, more control around what goes on locally with efficient approaches to how we bring some standardization and efficiency, because we need these assets as a country. We need to make them as efficiently as possible and not go reinventing the wheel every time and building inefficient localised solutions that are always different, that, 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 that end up costing the taxpayer lots of money. So it's around that efficiency approach um, and bringing in that, that sort of local, local decision-based approach to, 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 to decision-making as well. I think that's really important. Excellent. And I just want to say one in one minute <laughs> that, uh, you know, that is precisely what um, an institution such as ours is designed to do because we have to not just show that we are making a positive financial return but also hit our strategic objectives. We are designed to have a higher risk appetite. We can offer concessional financing, preferential rates. Uh, you can, you know, go into partnerships with government. So, you know, the institutional capital of UKIB is also an important feature in, in, in delivering, you know, higher risk appetite for, um, you know, uh, government investment, public investment. Excellent. Thanks very much. Uh, I can possibly squeeze one more question in, uh, if anyone in the audience has one. Uh. Hi, I'm Amiran um, from, I represent TFL and just um, infrastructure and architecture geek. Um, I have a question um, I, I'll just broadly ad address to the board. Um, are we looking to invest uh, in training and retraining of, um, of professionals who will be slowly released from traditional services industry um, into to feed the supply chain to help transition mm -hmm. Because um, the, the con for context, I'm asking the question because there's not enough consultants, even there's not enough consultants around who are able to suggest the best possible solutions for retrofitting, for transitioning, to bringing the load of, of, of electricity generation. Um, it would be great if, if say, a representative of Labour government would um, respond if they have a clear plan on retraining and training new professionals? That is a very good question uh, and one that I plan to ask myself, so thank you very much. So on the link between infrastructure and other areas of government policy, including skills, um, I'm going to go around starting with uh, Sir John and fold in any closing remarks that you want to make <coughs> as well. Thanks. I, I believe skills and training. Um, is fundamentally the responsibility of employers. I don't believe it's the responsibility of government. Um, and I think one of the weaknesses of this country is that there is underinvestment by employers um, in training. I saw a figure a couple of days ago, I think it was only something like, it was either 17 or 27% of employers are actually directly investing in training. And uh, I think, but what we have to do is create the, the need for that training 
which comes back to this certainty and, uh, of policy and delivery, which actually can enable companies to see that there's going to be a demand for their services. If it's an employer, you can see there's a demand for your services. Then you'll go and start recruiting and training, whether it's from overseas, from whether it's the UK, it doesn't matter, frankly, in my mind. The important thing is that you create jobs, because jobs drives economic growth. Um, but I don't think we can have some sort of centralised, grand, um, sort of Soviet plan which says, oh, well, in the northwest we're going to need 300 of these, and over there we're going to need 100, and over here we're going to have 500, and then start saying to education um, bodies, this is what you've got to do to deliver. It has to be done as a consequence of demands, not trying to predict what the demand is going to be and then sort of lay out and waste money probably on training the wrong skills for the wrong, for the wrong jobs. So I, I think you've got to have that certainty of demand, which comes back to the, uh, our earlier conversation, but then you will see the reaction of employers. If we had absolute certainty about the programme of the rollout of heat pumps that is, and the insulation of homes, that is the biggest driver of local growth than anything else because it's, not, it's across the whole country that we'll have to invest in these uh, uh, activities. It'll require skills across the whole country and you will see people retaining voluntarily in order to get on that ladder because they can see 10 years of work installing heat pumps or, or carrying out thermal efficiency improvements, whatever it might be. And I was delighted to hear the government actually yesterday acknowledging that it was going to start being willing to bring back skilled workers from, from overseas because clearly that has created a whole in the availability of, of labour as well. Excellent. Thanks very, thanks very much. Uh, so, Steve, I mean, does the uncertainty and instability in public sector project pipeline affect decisions weights may weight makes around training? Um, I think it's, it's abs yeah, I me. Mean, it's it's really really important. This 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 pipeline, as I mentioned earlier, that that the, the long term pipeline, that certainty around where we're going to get the work from in, in three years, five years time plus, is really, really important in making those investment decisions. Um, and I think that there's an important point to make around this, this thing, around the, 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 the skills crisis as well. Because it, is, it, isn't just, it isn't just operatives, it's also professionals, you know, skilled professionals doing design work, etc. There is a huge problem around, around the availability of, the, the, of, of designers as well. And, and, and I'll give you an example as well. We're again talking about the world platform. Uh, working on a large-scale project where the team have been moved off to work on a design for a job in Saudi because they're mobile, because of, because of modern techniques. You can use the same design team all around the world because, because they can work virtually. So we, we, we've got these other challenges where people are, being, are, are going off to go and work on other schemes. So we, we need to be quite, quite cognizant of these sort of different challenges. We do need to train those people. But one of the issues we have, we, we, we um, train about 40,000 people per annum in construction-related disciplines, but there's only 8,000 jobs for them. We've got to think about how we give these young people a a future with a job attached to it. It is no good just continuing just to put them through university, put them through college, if there isn't an actual job for them to do. Because that's one of the challenges that we face then, they're going into other industries and other things. So I think, absolutely, that, that commitment to training, and I think you know, across the industry we need to improve cross-working, CITB needs to, needs to continue to, to improve and progress as well, that's all part of the industry. And we've, got to, we've really got to address that. It's absolutely critical. But that pipeline is really important. Excellent. Thanks very much. Uh, I'm afraid our MP scarpered shortly before you asked for a policy commitment. So um, it's going to be straight <laughs> to uh, Avashi uh, on that question or uh, any other sort of general closing. Yeah, I'm, well, thoughts. I'm not going to add to the, you know, the excellent uh, comments made on skills. That's not, you know, I'm going to profess I'm in that, mm. in that um, you know, expert area, but I think it's really important to see, as I said before, you know, for us and for any institutions, including the NIC, to be hand in glove with, um, you know, what central government is doing. So we, you know, we are operationally independent, but we are partners with government. We are not going to just stand aside. We are a problem-solving institution. We are going to talk to them, and that's what we are doing. You know, we are in regular dialogue with them, and issues such as skills, Planning, uh, you know, the, uh, what we were just, what we heard earlier about hydrogen, because that's one of our sectors. 
we have to understand how the pipeline is and would develop, where we can come in, because we are in a sweet spot between the market and the government, are we hitting that sweet spot? And where are we going to come in and support uh, technology? So, uh, you know, all I wanted to say was that, you know, that, that partnership and dialogue is also quite critical to, you know, solving some of the problems that we've been talking about. Excellent. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, so that brings uh, everything to a close for today, I think. I'd like to thank Waits again for partnering uh, with us to deliver this event. Thanks very much to everyone in the room and indeed to everyone on, online uh, for joining us. I hope you found it uh, interesting. Um, a reminder that our next public event uh, asked the question, is the Darlington Economic Campus a blueprint for successful civil service relocation? We will be holding that in Darlington uh, on the Economic Campus, but you can sign up to join online. Um, that's Monday lunchtime. But uh, other than that, feel free to join us for drinks on the landing uh, immediately after this. Um, but I hope you'll join me in thanking Avashi, Bill, Steve and John for a fascinating discussion. <laughs>